Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 10th episode, I'll be talking to Kit Walker, co-host of The Gem Jam and I Will Fight You, and author of the Endling series, about growing up on a Hellmouth, Bionicle, Star Trek, and then someone mentions Transformers and the whole thing goes in the ditch. We'll finish the episode with our signature cocktail and tell you how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. Kit, for those who may not know you, why don't you explain who you are and what makes you, in the words of Chris Haley, a beautiful and unique snowflake. My name's Kit Walker. I am a writer. I am a podcasting type person. And I am also a tiny gay fashion witch from the quasi-elemental plane of salt. And that's good. That should be on a business card. <laughs> that has been suggested to me multiple times. I'm going to have to get a business card that's the size of, like, like a computer to fit all the titles that I should have on it by now. Just line after line, and at the bottom it's like stepladders repaired. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, and astute listeners might recognize Kit from The Gem Jam and I Will Fight You, two podcasts that I enjoy immensely. And that I am kind of trying to avoid being the one gushing about all the time on social media because <laughs> I don't want to be that fan. I don't want to be the person who it's like, like basically live tweets an episode, but I, I, I may have done that before. <laughs> That's okay. We love it. We love it when people talk to us. We love it when people live tweet the episode. As long as like you're not getting into fights with other people about stuff that we don't care about, but you've looped us in on the conversation, so we get a notification every time anyway. No. (laughs) Because that's happened to us a couple of times, and it's, like, you can't say anything because it's tremendously rude, but you really wish they would stop or at least remove you from the conversation. You just want to throw in a quiet little unsubscribe, please. (laughs) Basically, yeah. Yeah, I wish to unsubscribe from this newsletter. (laughs) At least turn off notifications from this tweet stream. So, Kit, tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I was born in Windsor, Ontario, which is, like, right across the river from Detroit. And because that sucks, when I was about three, my family moved me and my brother out to uh, Edmonton, Alberta. It's not quite the ends of the earth, but you can certainly see it from there. (laughs) It is also, like, a liminal space where the veil is thin. This is a really weird town. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do have a giant mall. Yeah, well, not just the giant mall itself is like, it's an unreal place. You go in there and nothing makes sense. It's like you stepped into the fairy kingdom or something. But the town itself, it's just, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense culturally, geographically. But I do really like it here. And we moved to this, it it was almost a suburb, but it's at the core of the city. It's like 10 minutes from downtown and it's down in the river valley. And it's a really like quiet secluded forested area with lots of parks and lots of little tree-lined boulevards and a little red brick school that only has a hundred kids in it and the community is called and i need you to understand that i'm not kidding when i say this riverdale (laughs) okay i get okay the question is were they in on the joke when they named it that i think the community predates the comics but only by a little bit Maybe the comic, I was going to say, I think the comics would have chosen it because it's kind of that Anywhere USA yeah. kind of sounding name. Well, it's idyllic sounding, isn't it? Riverdale. Sounds like something <laughs> out of The Hobbit. <laughs> Across River and Underdale and such. <laughs> My parents were all like a generation older than the other parents in the neighborhood. My parents were always like, what the hell is a play date? No, you don't need to call to go ahead. Just go over and knock on their door and ask if they want to come out and play. And if they say, yes, you go to the park, but no. The other parents didn't want us to do that. So we would have to call in and say, hey, is Patrick there? Hey, does Patrick want to hang out? And then we'd end up playing video games in his room or something. And how does Patrick feel about this? <laughs> does, is I mean, he there? What's he wearing? Like, How tall is he right now? <laughs> Just... Oh, poor Patrick. He stopped going outside at some point. Oh, <laughs> He's just like, I, they're out there. They're waiting for me. They want to know if I want to come out and play. I, do, I don't have an answer for them, Mom. I don't. I really don't. 
I, I have a secret suspicion, though, that Edmonton is actually on a Hellmouth because uh, I read a book when I was very young called Code Red at the Super Mall that had, was by Eric Wilson. I know the one you're talking about. <laughs> oh, yes. When you said it and I mentioned the mall, I was like, why do I actually know that the mall's there? And then I had to remember this terrible teen mystery book from when I was was very young. And so I think, yes, that there is a secret, like a hell gate at the bottom of the West Edmonton Wall. Usually probably with a, an ice rink over it or like leading into a roller coaster. I would guess that the hell gate is directly underneath that neon interfaith chapel that's down a side corridor that you can only find it if you know that it's there. <laughs> the chapel to commerce. It's, it's, it's the West Edmonton Mall Chapel. It's got a neon sign. It's made almost entirely of, like, that crystal glass that refracts light into rainbows. And nobody okay. knows it's there. You have to go down a very specific side hallway to find it. And, and knowing how the internet reacts to things, it's probably a Pokestop at this point. Well, that's the thing about West Edmonton Mall. They've really leaned into the whole Pokemon Go thing. So they've got signs up for the Pokestops and the gyms. And, like, the Santa Maria pirate ship is a gym. There's Pokestops all over the place. They're, I think the whale is a Pokestop because they just put it back in. <laughs> That's excellent. There, there have been a few cafes around where uh, they've either gone, like, this is in, in Sydney, in Leichhardt, in Newtown, where they, like, like you've said, they've either leaned into it or they've been like staunchly against Because <laughs> honestly, like people, they'll actually put up a sign saying, there are no Pokemon here, go home. <laughs> and I'm just like, guys, I'm, I'm sure people want coffee. You know, you could, you could let them in. Make them buy a coffee, but it's fine. Yeah, make it Pokemon are for customers only. There's a bar right by my house that has a sign out front that at one point said, we have 127 beers and three Pokemon inside. <laughs> Excellent. But this is like the really sketchy bar, or it was before they quote unquote rebranded. So nobody goes mm -hmm. in there anyway, not unless you want to get stabbed. <laughs> Yeah, there is a place in, in Newtown called the Coopers, which used to be the kind of place where they would scrape up the eyeballs at the end of the day. <laughs> and and then, yeah, it got completely gutted and redone. And now they do ni quite nice food in the upstairs. And they, like, took the roof off of it. So the upstairs is, like, this atrium-style bar uh, with umbrellas and stuff. It's actually really nice. And I have to try and now explain to people, sounding as old as I probably am, going, no, 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 the Coopers was dangerous back in the day. You wouldn't go in there on Australia Day because there would be fights and people coming out the windows like in Westerns. <laughs> there was this, um, this bar over on Jasper Ave, which is one of our two drinking districts in Edmonton. We have exactly two. <laughs> and, uh, it was called Oil City Roadhouse, and the last time I went in there, somebody threw a chair out a window. <laughs> What's funny, you imagine bars like that would just buy, like, incredibly heavy chairs to try and discourage them from being thrown around? Yeah, but these are, like, guys who work on the oil sands, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they can so lift. All, all you get is a more effective weapon. Yeah. <laughs> so rather than a chair starting a fight, it finishes it. Yeah. <laughs> Edmonton is something like the northernmost major city in North America, so all of the oil sands workers who work up in Fort McMurray, they come down here when they get their days off and just basically drink nonstop and then go back, which means that um, the uh, those days are dark days, and they usually hang out in Jasper Ave, which is why I don't go to Jasper Ave. <laughs> See, my mom currently lives in Winnipeg, and uh, I visited there once for when she got married to my stepdad, and I landed... Uh, on December 17th and in a suit from Australia and it was minus 39 and everything was gray and everyone was angry and I'm like why, why would you live there and now I'm thinking everyone from Winnipeg should just go to Edmonton because Edmonton at least sounds interesting I don't understand why someone would move to Winnipeg not unless they had a job there that they really wanted to do and that job is probably involved in you know counseling people who whose primary uh, influences the fact that they've been living in Winnipeg and they're really sad about it. Sounds about right, yeah. I was speaking to to Megan Nielsen about living in Anchorage, Alaska, and apparently it has a really good, like, metal indie music scene. I can't imagine. <laughs> because everyone's real mad about being in Alaska. And then I think about how uh, the musician Venetian Snares wrote a lot of music about Winnipeg, and it's just this, like, aggressively atonal, like, angry sort of electro music where nothing makes sense. And I'm like, yeah, that, that does paint a picture of Winnipeg. <laughs> so, so Kit, what sort of kid were you? I would hesitate to say nerd because I also didn't fit in with like the nerd circles. I went outside because my parents made me go outside because they were hippies. And I didn't have 
much in the way of video games because my parents, again, were hippies and didn't believe in them. <laughs> so all, the only video games I played were like educational games and like Caesar 3 and stuff that would run on our like really terrible Mac computer. I was going to say, if you, are you going to mention Math Blaster? <laughs> no, it's <laughs> thankfully no. <laughs> So now as a result, whenever I talk about video games with people, it's like I'm an odd, feral child who was raised by wolves and doesn't know what a Zelda is. <laughs> I mostly hung out with dudes and I had like one or two girlfriends, but the hanging out with the dudes was mostly a byproduct of hanging around my younger brother all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, most, like, I mostly kept to myself. And at one point, one of my teachers, I think it was in second grade, had a theory that uh, I had D and, uh, not D&D, ADD. <laughs> Those are two very, different, very different things. things. Um, I was thinking A, D, and D for some reason. <laughs> I've been reading a lot about Planescape. I, I think the, her, she was a little eager to diagnose me with that because the school got more money with the more kids they had with learning disabilities or whatever. So, uh, or, or I guess, what's the term? Learning disorder? I think it was learning disorder. I'm not sure, but yeah. But this teacher went to my mom and said, I, I, I think uh, Kit has ADD or ADHD. And my mom was like, well, is she paying attention in class? Well, yes. Is she doing all her schoolwork? Yes. Well, then what's the problem? She's drawing all the time. After she finishes her schoolwork? Yeah. She's bored. Give her more <laughs> stuff to do. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, I was I, I was one of those kids. It's like school was kind of there. I, was, I grudgingly did school, and I did it to the best of my ability. But most of the time, it was interfering with the stuff I really wanted to do, which was like making little paper, paper craft things and, and drawing and writing and doing whatever I wanted by myself. And I've heard that dragons featured into that quite heavily. <laughs> well, I mean, I was a little girl with nerdish tendencies. Of course, dragons featured into that. <laughs> I can't. I'm. I'm. I'm hard pressed to remember what first got me interested in dragons as a concept. I'm pretty sure it's just one of those things that's that's born into being a girl of a certain age. The idea of having this huge lethal pet that loves you very much and is possibly telepathically connected to you. I was going to say you. You were a pern reader, weren't you? Yeah. Um. My mom was a pern reader, so I was a pern reader from possibly too young of an age. I think I got started on the series <laughs> when I was about ten years old. Uh, which oh, is way too young to be reading about dragon fucking. Am I allowed to swear on this? <laughs> yes, okay. please. It's way ahead. too young to read about, you know, when two characters fuck, their dragons also fuck. But, you know, it happened. <laughs> I was also reading a lot of Tamora Pierce at that time, which... Oh, yes. It's It was possibly aimed at a slightly older girl than I was, but I was also like, I've been 38 years old since I was eight, so whatever. <laughs> And yeah, my, my grandma got me started on Tamora Pierce because she sent me a book that had a bunch of horses on the cover. I was also really into horses because, again, I was a little girl. So she sent me a book that had a bunch of horses on the cover. It turned out to be Wild Magic by Tamora Pierce, which is the first book of the Immortals series. And so I devoured the Immortals series. And then I got started on the Alana series, which took place before that because Alana showed up in Immortals. So I wanted to know what her deal was. And then I basically devoured everything Tamora Pierce wrote from up until like 2000, probably. And then I've lost track of the series since then, but I want to go back at some point and reread all of it. I'm not sure if it'll hold up, but it'll be interest- an interesting experience. Yeah, I'm, a- I'm always afraid to revisit stuff. Like, I read the um, the Anne McCaffrey... Oh, God, what was it? Um, shit, I can remember the second one, but I can't remember the Is first one. Is it the one. Pegasus series? Oh, uh, I don't remember what the series was called. It was, uh, like, a Talents, the Talents series with the Rowan and Damia and ones like that, which was basically, like, kids and telepaths and cats and, you know prime level telepaths being used to throw starships across the universe and there was yeah lots of that and also there was some now looking back there was some really uncomfortable stuff around like someone who's a child's guardian falling in love with that child when they become 18 and it's like eh, yeah maybe, maybe that not. happened in the immortals too i don't know what was happening oh, in geez. the 90s that, <laughs> that this was a common enough trope but for whatever reason, it's there. And specifically stuff like the Guardian being in love with the mum and accepting that the mum is not going to be a, a viable partner because the mum is involved and then like transferring that affection to the daughter. And it's like, uh, there's so many flags, a blizzard of flags. Yeah, I know um, Stephanie Meyer keeps claiming that she's not well-versed in fantasy, but you gotta think she read some of that because it shows up in her stuff a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. We could talk about imprinting, but you know what? We're not gonna. Yeah, we're not gonna go with the whole imprinting on a baby vampire cesarean thing because 
We're not gonna, for one thing, there's nobody here who we can play a game of Horrify the Twilight Noob with, so there's really no point. <laughs> yeah, we've all seen too much. <laughs> when that movie came out, I was so excited to tell people, no, you gotta go see it. You need to go the, see the it. The CGI baby with the weird face. <laughs> Trust me on this. You've gotta see it. See, I, I, I went into those movies with uh, the comforting shield that is Rift Tracks, so... <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm going to watch it, but I'm going to watch it with the rift tracks on so I have this, like, buffer so I don't have to, like, you know, accept the horror. You don't have to engage <laughs> it with it directly. Up. There's a comfortable layer of snark between you and the material. Exactly. <laughs> oh, what was another one of the... Mercedes Lackey. I read a lot of her. Oh, I was I was thinking of that. When the minute you said horses on the cover, um, I, I remembered I had an aunt, uh, my aunt Fran, who everyone in my mom's family called Cricket, and so she was my aunt Cricket for a while. We first got me into Piers Anthony, handed a, a 12-year-old Lucas Castle Rugna, which I liked because there were jokes in it, but it was also a fantasy, and it was all puns, all puns all the time, and then kept trying to get me into Mercedes Lackey. And I never quite picked it up, but it would always be like she'd visit, and then there would be a Mercedes Lackey book left in my room. <laughs> I got in... <laughs> I got, I got into her because I was in the book section of Value Village and I found a book with a griffin on the cover, which was close enough to a dragon that I was intrigued. And it turned out it was the White Griffin, which was a second book in a trilogy about griffins. So that got me started on Mercedes Lackey. And from then it was, oh, there's also horses in this, telepathic horses that people soul bond with. This is perfect. There's no dragons <laughs> to complete the holy trifecta, but you know. Yeah, also uh, Guy Branham on Pop Rocket talks a lot about Mercedes Lackey and because there were relationships in there that were not ones that he had seen in fiction before and he always felt like he was doing something wrong by reading it and felt like he had to hide it behind the other books on his shelf so his parents didn't see not <laughs> accepting that his parents didn't know the content and would not have cared he's just reading a fantasy book yeah I think that's a, a common thing for young kids to end up reading books that have like stuff that their parents would not normally approve of, but it's a fantasy book. It's for kids. What could <laughs> what could possibly be in there that's inappropriate? It's just like swords and sorcery and magic and stuff. <laughs> although in my although I still have to say my mother had read the Pern books and still let me read them, so I don't know what was going on there. All right, Mom. Yeah, just, you know. <laughs> Maybe she just really wanted someone to talk to about them. I don't remember whether she gave me the books or whether I just started pulling them off her shelf because she has, like, this tremendously huge collection of vintage fantasy and sci-fi dating oh, cool. back to, like, the 60s. There's a lot of, like, Star Trek novels in there. There's a lot of uh, Dragon Riders of Pern. There's some other, like, romantic fantasy-type books. Okay. See, I'm trying to think now, and I'm thinking of my, my stepmother having, like, those terrible Eric von Lustenbatter ninja books that I never read because they looked strange, and there was always, like, a rose and a mask and a sword on the cover. <laughs> but I did steal her interview with the vampire, and that was the first time I read that. And I remember my dad seeing me reading it and warning me that, quote, people get really into this stuff, so be careful when reading this book. Oh, uh, what, like the Anne Rice-type cults, or...? <laughs> I presume so. I think he must have seen something on 60 Minutes or whatever about, about you know, goth kids sweeping the high schools. And I'm like, Dad, it's 95. I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I am 13. Let me read about vampires. <laughs> it's time, Dad. <laughs> you mentioned right at the beginning, you said Caesar 3 was a game yeah. you used to play? See, I played, I played Caesar 2 on summers when I would visit my mom. And it would be like, because I didn't know any kids in the town where she lived, because she lived halfway across the country. She lived in northern Ontario, in a town that had 1,100 or 1,300 people, depending on which sign you looked at. Ooh, that's rough. Yeah. And so I would sit in the basement, which was the only not stinking hot place in the house during summer, and play Caesar 2. And I realized, it's like, you know how you internalize certain sounds from certain games or lines from movies? Mm -hmm. Whenever some someone will refer to... Oh, to, to plebs or something being plebeian. My brain just shouts, plebs are needed. And <laughs> I, I just, I can't get rid of it. It's it's in there forever. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I still have like a, a a instinctive panic reaction to the the Carthaginians are invading noise from Caesar 3. 
Oh, but my mom got really into that one, too, to the point where I would sometimes come downstairs for a drink of water at 2 a.m. and she'd still be up playing it. I told her it was on good old games these days. And mm-hmm. she was like, no, I can't. I can't go back there. I can't go. <laughs> I can't do that again. I've got things I need to do. And then about two weeks later, you like haven't heard from your mom. It's like, ah, oh, she's back on the gear again. What's really great is she day whether it would even run on her computer. And I said, the game came out in 1999. It'll run on a toaster. <laughs> it would probably run on one of those screens they keep putting on the front of fridges. Yeah, probably. I mean, I would not... I would love to try and install it on one of those, honestly. <laughs> they can make Baldur's Gate 2 run on a phone. They can make Season 3 run on a fridge. <laughs> it's like when I was talking to Andrew Cunningham about having like this like unhealthy like obsession with Age of Mythology and that having a crappy laptop that wouldn't run new games and so going to like the equivalent of your Best Buy and getting something like Age of Mythology or Command and Conquer Generals and just playing that for like two straight years. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally getting it, like I got a new laptop, like a fairly shiny new laptop and went to install my favorite game and realized A, this laptop doesn't have a CD drive and B, if it like it won't actually run it, I would have to run like Windows XP in a little window and then run it from there. And I went, okay, it's one step too far. I have to cut myself off. At the point where you're running a virtual machine to try and run this game. It's time to At let go. At 800 by 600 pixels. You gotta let go. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm thinking, but think how fast it would run. <laughs> well, I've been playing a lot of the Infinity Engine games uh, from the 90s. And when they do run successfully on their computer, the loading screens are like that. They went to put all this work into these beautiful loading screens that I don't see anymore because they're gone <laughs> in a second. When we were setting up this, this podcast, the two things that you wanted to talk about specifically yep. were Star Trek and Bionicle. <laughs> now, Star Trek, I could happily talk about until the cows come home and then bore the cows with, like, transporter schematics. <laughs> but I'm really interested in, in Bionicle in that all I remember of Bionicle is it were those weird Lego people that looked like they were built out of Technics parts that had masks. They were built out of Technics parts. Oh, so I wasn't just being snarky, then that actually was the case. Yeah, I, I need you to prepare for this, because there may actually right. be some retainer slurping noises as I go through this. <laughs> All right, my, I'm ready. Okay. I'm prepared. Bionicle was born out of the Lego Technic line. Uh, I think the first Bionicle line still said Technic on it. So like the year before, I remember getting one of those little Lego Technic sets that I think all it did was there was an arm on it that threw a disc or something. It was like a little catapult mm-hmm. deal. And they had like a pseudo story around that little catapult thing, but it didn't really work. And then Bionicle hit like the next year. And what really drew me to it was first off, there was a girl Toa, which there was a girl Bionicle. There was in fact an entire village of girl Bionicles. So I was like, oh geez, this this might actually be for me. I'm, I'm kind of kind of sort of a tiny little bit included in this. This is cool. So I had to go out and buy the girl Bionicle like immediately. Representation. and the other thing was is that there was this really really deep story surrounding the toy line they never got weirdly enough they never got like a saturday morning cartoon out of the deal they didn't get a movie until like two or three years in and it was not very high budget but and it was out on dvd only the story was told in these little cds that you got with the bionicle kits like each one that you got uh with with the specific toa had a special cinematic on it of that Toa being badass. And uh, and then you got to go to the website. And the website had all sorts of information on this island and all the little villages, which are all associated with Aristotelian elements and the different cultural difference between the, of those villages and the personalities of the Toa, who were these heroes that protected the cute little villagers who were originally called Matoran but, or Tonga. But because a lot of the terms in the series were taken from Polynesian languages, Uh-oh. the Polynesian land- nations in question were like this is kind of not cool and lego walked it back and started changing a bunch of the names so toa stuck around the island name matanui stuck around the tahunga were changed to the matoran and any new terms introduced were just you know mashing together syllables instead of taking them directly from a language which is fair i feel yeah yeah so and on the website in addition to all of this they had a flash game which was like a, a mist type adventure point click adventure game. Oh my god! Yeah, it was incredible. It was I did I never played mist. I never played anything like this before. This you fired up this game and you didn't really know what it was, and it drops you on a beach 
and there's a cute little villager from the water village waving at you, and there's a canister sitting on the beach with footsteps leading away from it. Big footsteps. Uh-oh. And it turns out those footsteps are Tahu, the, the Toa of Fire, who's gone off into the woods, and there's a whole cinematic when you catch up with him. But you can also go to, like, the water village, which is under attack from a thing, and, you know, all the villagers are trapped in this underwater hut, so you've got to start swimming around and look for this gear to fix the thing that raises the hut. And then when you do, the, the monster, which is called Arahi, shows up. And then Gali, the girl Toa, shows up to fight the monster. You get another cool cinematic of that. And it's this whole adventure that you can play all the way through where you are just a little villager running around chronicling the adventures of, of these great heroes to the point where you're actually like holding the line while they go underground to fight the, the big villain of the series, Makuta. And like I said, this this was unlike anything I had ever played before. This got me like so... I'm one of those... I was one of those kids and I'm still the kind of person where if I'm interested in something, I am completely obsessed. I learn everything about it. So I got completely obsessed with this series for years. Like, I think I stuck with it from 2000 when it came out to like 2007, I think, is when I finally gave up and went, okay, this is going in a place that they don't really know what they're doing anymore. (laughs) Don't go where I can't follow. Don't go where I can't follow my article. Um, (laughs) But after the Matanui online game ended, they still, uh, for the next year, for the Borok storyline, they still had these little flash movies on, on uh, on the website that came out every couple of months that caught you up on the story. And there were comics and there were books. And I read and consumed all of it and bought a lot of the toys and started trying to construct. I talked about this on I Will Fight You in our Mary Sue's episode. I started constructing my own characters out of the parts. They wouldn't last for long because I would miss having somebody on my shelf. So I'd deconstruct one of my Mary Sue's so I could reconstruct like Omura or Pohatu <laughs> or whoever. See, that's cool. I, I think especially with the, the Lego kind of, the Lego environment loans itself to that kind of deconstruction and reconstruction. Yeah. And I think as sort of an... I suppose if you think about it like from a narrative standpoint, that makes it really easy to customize and personalize your characters. It is, especially if you like shell out for, I, I think it was the um, the creature kit, the Bionicle creature kit, which had a bunch of parts that re- you could rearrange into various little critters from the island, or you could just decide that you were going to make your own thing out of the parts from the creature kit and the various other uh, Bionicle sets that you had. And there were a lot of them. You had, like, I think year one, you got, like, the six Toa themselves, and then a bunch of the Rahi sets, were the, which were the big, complex monsters, which were really fun to build. I didn't get to buy a lot of those because I was about 11 years old and didn't have a lot of money to spend on these things. But mm-hmm. the aforementioned Patrick, his parents were rich, so they bought him everything. <laughs> the amount, number of times I went over there just so I could play with, like, his Legos or his Beast Wars or whatever was awesome. Although it wasn't Beast Wars in Canada, it was Beasties, because you can't have war yes. in the title of a kid's show in Canada. In, until the third series, at which point they just kind of threw up their hands and went, guys, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, let's just put it out. <laughs> I think a lot of the third series season was just, eh, guys, I don't know. Let's tie it back to Gen 1 somehow. <laughs> yeah, the, the animation got so much better, the plotting got more intricate, but then the schedule got so short that they're yeah. like, we'll introduce a character, and they die in the next one. Because... <laughs> Because we had three seasons written and you've given us one. <laughs> got to introduce this character. They've got a toy for it. Yeah, and we've got to kind of tie it back to before. And so we've got Tiger Hawk and Air Razor, and now you've got Tiger Hawk. Isn't that cool? Also, he's a $50 toy. And Air Razor's still dead. The one girl and she's dead. <laughs> well, there's Black Arachnia, but I, I never connected with Black Arachnia the way I connected with Air Razor. Air Razor was the cool one. I was about to say, Air Air Razor's introduction episode is one of the coolest introductions because you have not one but two characters risking their lives to make sure she's essentially born. And then she turns up from the coolest animal on the planet, which is the Prairigan Falcon. (laughs) And not only does she turn up as a falcon, she then, like, literally tears apart Pterosaur. It's great. (laughs) Uh, and I may have done that thing of that whole wrist-mounted guns pose. Yeah. I may have done that a lot when I was younger, <laughs> just because it was such a cool thing to have these, like, repeater guns on your wrists. And also, she was a flyer without having to be a flying monkey, because why are you a flying monkey, Optimus Primal? With a Look, hoverboard. he had a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> and those weird little maces that were sometimes guns and sometimes not. Uh, Optimus Primal was like the least interesting thing about Beast Wars too. 
It's like, yeah. oh, it's In- Optimus. Let's go back to Dinobot, please. He died for my sins twice. Oh, Dinobot is so great. <laughs> he gets an entire episode where he's Hamlet. It's wonderful. Yeah, I loved Dinobot and I loved Air Razor, and I was very bitter that both of those characters died. Mm-hmm. Air Razor especially was frustrating for me because I got a vaguely sapphic vibe from Air Razor. She was like the butch one, whereas Black Arachnia was like uh, the femme one. Yeah. So I really liked Air Razor, but then they put her in like this. This relationship with Tigertron that I never really got into? Or was was it Tigertron or Tigerbot? It was Tigertron, yeah. It was Tigertron. I should have followed my first impulse there. But they mm-hmm. put her in this, like, this love story with Tigertron. And it's like, okay, I guess. But I, I couldn't really, at, at like how, 10 or 11 years old, I couldn't really describe why this wasn't like hitting home for me at mm-hmm. all. Like I was never really interested in the love stories in whatever media I was consuming, and I realize now this because they were mostly heterosexual love stories. Well, there's that. Although, just to throw in, throw a monkey wrench into that, ha, Optimus Primal Pun, did you know that in Japan, in the Beast Wars manga, Eraser is male? Yeah, Eraser was a dude, which means that they had to play off the relationship between them as this whole, like, master and apprentice thing that was still, like, really homoerotic. Yeah, and, and weird, and, <laughs> yeah, it's like... They didn't quite get it, and the, the more they played up the, the sort of samurai and apprentice kind of vibe to it, the more skeevy it got. Like, it would yeah. have been fine if it was just a queer romance, but it's just like, oh, we have to play in the older, younger vibe. And I'm just like, you know, I'd rather not. Could, could you not, please? <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not removing any of the homoeroticism, but you're adding a power differential that's deeply uncomfortable. Thanks. <laughs> there you go. See, I was I was a fan of the um, the adversarial rat trap and Dinobot relationship. <laughs> the, the vitriolic best buds who would just like rip strips off of each other, but the minute anyone from outside were to interfere, both would turn on the interloper. That sounds about right. Yeah, that 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 was quite fun. Yeah, and I, there was a specific moment where they are arguing like nose to nose in a tunnel. And I think it's Tarantulas pops up to, to ambush them. And, and they just turn and tell him to shut up. And they both punch him out of the same movement and continue arguing. <laughs> and I'm just like, yes, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I want to go back and rewatch Beast Wars at some point. It's one of those things where I'm terrified it won't hold up. Uh, I, I hate to say it doesn't. Because thing is, I bought the DVDs when they came out. And the thing is, they're terrible. They're like 2003 DVDs with some terrible like animated menus. And, like, voice actors that have clearly been, like, grabbed for three seconds at a con to be like, hey, record a thing as an intro. And you'll see, like, poor Gary Chalk being like, hi, I'm Gary Chalk, and welcome to Beast Wars. And it's like, you're so uncomfortable right now. And, but yeah, the early episodes don't hold up because the animation was not at the level it, it was later. And then the later ones don't hold up because it shows how rushed it was. And also, don't even try to go to Beast Machines. You, oh, I wasn't planning to. Yeah, <laughs> I no. was. I remember watching Beast Machi- Machines as a kid and going, no, no, no. You, you've you've made a bat and you've made, given that bat Eddie Furlong hair, and no. <laughs> yeah, I think I I got about halfway into Beast Machines. I went no. I tried to watch a little bit of like the Gen two like repackage they did which was Robots in Disguise, mm-hmm. went no to that. And then I was basically out of Transformers until More Than Meets the Eye started coming out and a friend of me got, uh, and a friend of mine got me onto that series. Oh, it's such a good series. It's so good. And there's oh. gay robots. I love it. It's everything I wanted. <laughs> uh, I described it to someone as it'll make you cry for a gay memory stick. <laughs> oh, rewind in Chrome Dome. And, oh, and Tailgate and Cyclonus. OTP. Oh God, my babies, my robot uh, babies. Yeah, I, I got JoJo Seems to do me. Uh, she was doing commissions, and I asked her for one of a cute one of Tailgate and Cyclonus, and like Tailgate's riding on Cyclonus's shoulders, and Cyclonus is looking back like, Ugh, could you not? And I'm like, Ugh, Oh my yes, God, it's wonderful. <laughs> I'll, I'll and I, and I love Rodimus in that because he's a horrible, like, shitty man child. <laughs> he's the worst, and I love him. He's my son. <laughs> oh god that he he doodles in meetings and that becomes a plot point <laughs> yeah he, he carves things into his desk because he's bored and that turns out 50 issues later to be a major plot point because james roberts is amazing oh <laughs> uh, james roberts is like master of the slow burn plot <laughs> it's like you've heard of chekhov's gun more than meets the eye actually without a shadow of exaggeration uses chekhov's semicolon <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yeah. Because it changes the meaning of the clause. I think we're in an interesting era for these things, where people who were fans of the franchise when they were kids are now writing for the franchise, which leads to some, Mm -hmm. like, it leads to some really bad stories, cough, cough, Jeff Johns, and leads to some really good ones, too. Yeah, I've actually, um, not really a spoiler, I suppose, I've been long in the works of planning a a More Than Meets the Eye issue-by-issue podcast with Megan Nielsen, purely because as I was reading them, I would just like message her just with like screenshots off my iPad and then all capitals yelling about what's going on. <laughs> yeah. What would you do once you caught up? Once we caught up, I think, well, the thing is there, there's honestly like what, 57 issues. Yeah. So if we're doing one issue per, it's like, that's a year. <laughs> so I'm sure they'll have more by that point. But yeah, uh, we could always stop, but no, I don't see it happening. <laughs> also, I tried to read Robots in Disguise. It's not as good. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I... it's it's really not. It's I think it's a different kind of story. If you prefer sort of the dark political story, then you're gonna get you're gonna get more out of uh, Robots in Disguise, which is now just the Transformers. But if you like, you know, gay robots in space, more than meets the eye is your book. <laughs> and, and deep uh, deep thoughts on functionism and re- revolutionary <laughs> communism in the form of Megatron. And uh, redemption stories and all that good stuff. Yeah. Then you want you want more than me to which is now going to be I think the Lost Light is what they're calling it. They're switching it. They're changing the title. Uh, yeah, it could because the robots in disguise became the Transformers. More than me is going to become Transformers: The Lost Light. I guess that's fair because then the the duality of the two books do- doesn't quite work when one of them is no longer robots in disguise. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, see, now, now you've got me off on a tangent, and I just want to gush about Transformers for the rest of the show. <laughs> ah! <laughs> I really do, because uh, I was saying this initially when I, when I started to like talk about developing the new podcast, is I said that Transformers like literally was my very first fandom. Like, I've been in... Like that kind of fan with Transformers. Like you mentioned, like write, writing down, like and understanding everything and wanting to read everything. I was that for Transformers since the age of maybe six. <laughs> but thing is, Transformers fandom until recently is because it. Okay, uh, I can say this because we know our own. A lot of Transformers fandom is kind of gross and wrong. Yeah. So it's like, it, it's very easy to be like, okay, you know, comics people, movie people, sci-fi people, fantasy people. And then there are Transformers people, and they're the weird ones in the corner. I actually kind of love it. I love that uh, if you go into the Transformers tag on Tumblr, you are probably going to see some, like, hilarious porn. Or horrifying porn. <laughs> Rule 34. Or both. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, You know, I honestly prefer that side of the fandom, who are having fun, to the side of the fandom that hangs out on message boards and constantly argues over which headmaster is the best. Ugh. Everyone knows it's Brainstorm anyway. (laughs) It is Brainstorm, but that's just because I love Brainstorm. (laughs) Speaking of horrible, shitty man-children. In looking at More Than Meets the Eye, I I remembered, oh, right, because Dreamwave had the comics for a while, and they looked cool, but were terrible. And then IDW took them over. Oh, they were, Pat Lee, you have a lot to to answer for. (laughs) And then they switched over to IDW, and then they were doing, remember, like, they did a, a story at the beginning where... Transformers were like mindless drones being controlled by a corporation. And I'm like, I, I'm not here for that. That's not I, that's Transformers. Not really... Yeah. And then later, like there were years and years and before James Roberts took over. And I, and I remember like following some of the TF Wiki articles back and like how Spike is like this like gritty anti-hero and like, you know, is shown like, you know, casually using women whose names he doesn't know. And I'm like, wait, wait, stop. This is stupid. What are you doing? What are you doing? Get out of my sandbox. Spike's a huge nerd. Oh, he should be, but he's not. <laughs> and I'm going to tread delicately on this subject because it is not my story to tell. Mm. But the whole way RC was handled was really uncomfortable. Oh, you mean the thing where she was a male Autobot until a mad scientist made her into a female Autobot? That whole thing? Which then turned her, air quote, crazy and homicidal and murderous. Oh, God. That's one of the other things I love about More Than Meets the Eye, that when it came time to introduce more female characters, it's just like, no, there's an entire other colony of uh, of Transformers, and they've just decided to try out the genders. And it wasn't wasn't like a huge plot justification. It was just like, they're robots. They can do whatever they want. Exactly. 
And and then you get cool characters like Nautica. Oh god, I love Nautica, the huge purple nerd. <laughs> Engineering nerd, no less. Oh god. And and the whole thing that the um and I'm, and again this this um I'm trying to think how to put it. The idea of the conjuncts in Jura and I forget what the the other one is, where it's basically Amika you need to have that's the one, yeah. Where it's like, oh, you need to have a best friend. And if you don't, that makes you weird. Then how how that pays off in the dying of the light is just like really kind of lovely. Yeah. It's basically really, really, really good science fiction about robots and robots that can change shape and don't have a defined gender and what that means with a Hasbro Transformers label slapped on it. Exactly. And then, of course, you get meta things like Swerve World. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Or even just the, the idea that those who have not read the series, Transformers have, in, in some media, they have what's called a hollow matter avatar. And what that means is it's a little holographic person that will sit in the cockpit of whatever car or plane they turn into. So it doesn't look weird among humans when there's, you know, a car with no driver. And it was played with a little bit in, in the terrible films and a little bit in the animated series. But more than meets the eye, uses it and runs with it in a really interesting character-driven way where your hollow matter avatar subconsciously reflects stuff about you. So you'll get Rodimus, who is a hotshot kid with fancy hair and a red Hawaiian shirt that looks like flames. And it's amazing. And then you, you'll get other characters where, you know, Rewind will be this sort of kind of cool hipster indie guy with a cool band t-shirt. And Cyclonus will be an imposing Victorian woman with a parasol and purple hair. <laughs> and Tailgate is a literal baby. Yep, <laughs> he's a because he's, he's a tiny precious baby. I really loved Rodimus's avatar though, which which was, that was like Michael Kelso uh, had <laughs> sex with Marty McFly, and their baby is now keg stand champion of Delta Tau Pi. <laughs> Excellent. My favorite though, and it's it's an easy reveal. It's 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 a little bit of a page turn reveal, but it's the best. So Whirl, Whirl, who is a twin rotor helicopter, who is a homicidal former soldier with no moral compass, also an exceptionally funny character, turns up as a six-year-old in overalls and pigtails with an eye patch and two Uzis. <laughs> Which I feel is like the perfect visualization of who Whirl is as a person. And I have seen that cosplayed by little girls at conventions, and it is the best. Oh my god, it's exceptional. <laughs> I love I love Whirl, and I love Whirl's Hollow Matter avatar. It's just it's so good. <laughs> And the gap tooth and the giant smile and the what can I kill next face. <laughs> all right, I'm going to pivot the conversation out of more than meets the eye because we will be here all goddamn day. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're trapped in a Transformers place and we need to get out. <laughs> Let's go somewhere more reasonable. Let's talk about Star Trek. Star Trek, okay. My mom's going to come up again here too because she was a major influence in terms of the stuff I like. My mom is like an OG Trekkie. Uh, she watched okay. the show when it was on the air, and she has mm -hmm. been like a longtime fan of Star Trek as a result. As far back as my memory goes, I have been watching Star Trek. It's part of my life intrinsically. For all of my formative years, Star Trek was there. It, we didn't even really consciously seek it out. It was just, it was the thing everybody sat down to watch. First it was T TNG, and then it was Deep Space Nine, and then it was Voyager, and you know, I'm Janeway's bitch forever. <laughs> See, did you have it? Because I, I remember from being about maybe, gosh, maybe like 10 or 11, and it would be like I would have a bath and my mom would make popcorn and I would get in my pajamas and my hair would still be wet and I'd sit down with this bowl of popcorn, in a metal bowl, of course, because reasons, mm -hmm. and would sit down to Next Generation and it would be the, the new one would come on at 7.30 and then there would be the second half of a rerun that would start on eight at 8 on another channel. So I would finish watching the new one and then flip over and Riker wouldn't have a beard. <laughs> and and everything was terrible, but it was fun. And there were the creepy bugs that would go inside inside of people. And then there was a head exploding. <laughs> I remember that episode. I recently rewatched like all of TNG for like funsies because it just got on Canadian Netflix. Oh, cool. And w what was your impression going back? I don't. I didn't remember a lot about TNG the first time around because I was born in 1990, so I was very, very young when it was still, like, on the air and new. What I do remember of the earlier days was from watching reruns after school when I was about, like, eight or nine years old. So going back and watching a lot of the episodes, I was like, oh, I remember this one, but I don't remember how it plays out. Or I didn't realize that I'd seen the episode before until I hit the ending, and I was like, oh, this is that episode. Yeah, that's a phenomenon that we've hit, that I've hit a few times on this podcast talking about with 
people of a certain age where they'll have seen the end of something but never seen the beginning or vice versa. And that, I think, is a product of the VHS age where things were taped off of TV and that became your formative version of that work with the commercial cuts. Mm. And, you know, like I've said many times on here, I've never, I had never seen the beginning of Bloodsport until maybe a year ago. Yeah, just whenever somebody remembers to hit record on the thing. Exactly. See, I, I always kind of struggled with original series because Next Generation had been kind of like my, my starting point. And whenever I would go back to original series, it was too jarring for me. And I couldn't take it seriously. And also there was the fact that whenever I turned on the television, it was the episode with the Horta. <laughs> watching Spock mind meld with a pizza because of its baby rocks. And while that is the most Star Trekky of Star Trek episodes, uh, where they have to talk to the monster instead of killing it, it's still... I, I, I saw it so many times in so many motel rooms or late at night on the sci-fi channel. And I was just like, you know what? I've had enough Horta in my life for a long time. That's sort of like, okay, I went to the 25th anniversary TNG event at Calgary Comic-Con a couple of years ago. One of the guys introducing the whole panel was Garrett Wang, who played Harry Kim in Voyager. And he was talking about when he got the job on Voyager, they asked him if he'd ever seen TNG, and he said no. He went back and he tried to watch TNG, saw it was coming on TV, so he decided to watch it. And the episode was Code of Honor, which is a bad one. It's really bad. (laughs) It's the one where, like, Tasha Yar goes goes with the away team down to this planet and says she's security chief and the guys on the planet are like, your security chief is a woman? And it's it's not good. And so <laughs> Garrett was like, okay, I guess I'm not going to watch TNG because if this is an indicator of the rest of the series. And then people kept saying to him, no, no, it's really good. You just got lucked out and got a really bad one. The series as a whole is really good. You should try watching it again. So he sees Star Trek is coming on TV Guide, so he turns over to watch it and it's Code of Honor again. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, ugh. So, uh, you know, a couple of years go by and they still, you know, you got, you got to try and watch TNG. So again, he goes to watch it on some channel and it's Code of Honor. And that's the day he decides, I shall not watch TNG. <laughs> oh God. I, and that, was that what, oh, that was the one with that weird arena fight at the yes. end and the gauntlets <laughs> and, oh God, that was a bad one. <laughs> Code of Honor is so bad. <laughs> The thing is that that's such an that's such an original series concept. It's the planet of hats, and oh yes, you must duel for the love of our king or whatever. Oh God, what a just mess. just recently was the fiftieth anniversary of Amok Time, which is the Spock fucker die <laughs> episode that spawned a billion fanfics. Yep. <laughs> which has been forever tainted by the Cable Guy, and you can't hear that music without imagining Jim Carrey doing the mouth noises for it. <laughs> It's still, you know, it is it is an iconic moment in the history of Slash fandom and should be appreciated as such. I also liked Voyager's take on that, which is where Belana has a Vulcan go into Ponfar for her. And because she's Belana and she's badass, she's like, fuck it, I'm going to fight for myself. I don't need you to fight for me. <laughs> yeah, you go, Belana, <laughs> in your weird kind of 90s way. Oh, 90s feminism was an interesting thing. It was indeed. It's like, what direction are you going in here? None? Okay. <laughs> well, we're, we're kind of repeatedly turning in circles, so it looks like progress. Have you had had the situation of trying to introduce someone to Star Trek? Weirdly enough, no, except for the I Will Fight You episode we did for Star Trek Four, Because Annie had never seen the Star Trek original series movies. She'd seen a lot of TNG and she'd seen the TNG movies. And a lot of Deep Space Mm -hmm. Nine. But never original series and never the original series movies. So she'd never seen... She would have had no idea what was going on in Star Trek IV. And Mackenzie, who had seen a lot of the original series, didn't remember it really well. Because she would be playing on her laptop uh, in the same room as her dad while he was watching it. I was sort of in the position of, you know, knowing everything about this movie. And the other two, while recording, like... Annie watched uh, Star Trek's two, three, and four to prepare for the episode. I warned her not to watch Star Trek. Oh Jesus! Spock. Oh Jesus! I have we oh. actually have a thing up on our Patreon, which is all the angry texts she sent me while watching Search for Spock. <laughs> oh man! And so, like, she she came into it as sort of newly introduced to the original series, and then Mackenzie came into it more or less completely blind, having no idea what was going on, but enjoying it nonetheless. Which explains the level of, of enthusiasm in that episode. Yeah. yeah, I've never been in a position where I had to try and talk someone into watching Star Trek. Mostly because, like, after the 2009 movie came out, it was something that everybody, like, 
started to be into and part of me was overjoyed by that but another part of me was like this horrible hipster impulse of you made fun of me for liking this when i was a kid yeah, you don't like it the way i do go away i liked it first go away <laughs> i i did in fact have to uh, well it didn't have to well i suppose if, if i view it from my standpoint i did have to but i got my ex into star trek by going and buying the 300 dollars cargo container dvd box set of Star Trek The Next Generation. And the thing is, she worked in human resources, so I got her interested in... Oh, God, which one was it? It was the one where I think it was uh, Jellico came on as the new captain and was shaking everybody up. And uh, the change management skills on the Enterprise were terrible. And I was, like, using this as a hypothetical to be like, hey, what would you do in this situation? Hey, if you like that, there's a whole series of it. <laughs> and and then we ran smack into the bedrock of, se- of terrible season one episodes. Oh... <laughs> That's always the roughest part. It's sort of why when I try to introduce somebody to a, a show like that, and it's a nice episodic show that doesn't have like a six-year-long storyline, I will say mm-hmm. this is the episode you want, want to watch to figure out whether this is a show you want to watch. And it's usually not from the first season, because the first season, no. everybody's still trying to get their bearings. My current girlfriend works in television, and her company has the Star Trek license in Australia. And at one point, she calls me and she's like, we're trying to come up with a funny pun for a t-shirt. And none of us have watched Star Trek. And I'm like, <laughs> she's like what, what, why are there just incomprehensible angry noises coming through the phone? I'm just like, I'd like to point out that the response they came back with, and I have a t-shirt that says this, is rock out with your Spock out. Oh, that's not good. That That is the end of a writer's room session. And uh, although that said, they are involved in the Peter Alexander Star Trek pajamas that have just come out, which are actually pretty cool. And I want a pair. And because it's Australia, there are also going to be different divisions of Ugg boots, where you can get operations Ugg boots and science Ugg boots and <laughs> security Ugg boots. Now, see, I hate Ugg boots, but not for the reason that everybody hates Ugg boots, which is that I am from a place where the snow in the winter regularly gets above knee high. Ugg boots are insufficient boots. They're, they're good if you think of them as they're just really comfy slippers. Yeah. Because I, I actually went and bought a pair after maybe nine years in Australia. And considering, as I've explained at length on this podcast, there are no, there's no insulation in houses in Australia. They're basically tents made of wooden brick. So if you need something to keep your feet warm, so wearing them around the house is fine. Wearing them out into the world, <laughs> no, no, that is not happening. I mean, people can wear what they want. And Uggs are ugly, but I've seen uglier things. But, you know... They're made of suede, and they're not sealed, and snow gets in, and it melts, and they soak through, and the whole thing just becomes like a slush-stained, constantly damp mess here. You can't wear them. Speaking of slush-stained, constantly damp messes, I don't have a segue. I just wanted to say that to see what I could come up with at the end of that sentence, which was nothing, but it's okay. All right, okay, well, we're just, I'm looking at the time. I think we should be probably wrapping it up. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, you can find the Gem Jam just about everywhere. Uh, there are podcasts. I don't think we're on Google Play Podcast, but that's because that's a very obtuse interface that doesn't uh, let us through. So iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, find us on Tumblr at The Gem Jam. You can find us on Twitter at Gem Jam Cast. I Will Fight You is also on all of those places except Tumblr because we didn't think it was made sense to have a tumblr for a six-week podcast and twitter because we just use the gem jam cast twitter to talk about that one both podcasts are also on youtube because when we first started out we had zero budget and therefore could not afford hosting so we just put it on youtube and then you can find my books well you can find my book on amazon right now it's called endling 600 years from home it is basically Farscape, but gayer, about a lady who finds herself <laughs> in a far-off alien territory, surrounded by weird and wonderful and very gay aliens. You can also find that uh, episodically at endlingseries.com. With a hyphen or without, I bought both. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of social networking, you can find me on Tumblr as Secular Baked Goods. You can find me on Twitter as Inferior Wit. Or you can find my landing page at about.me slash kitwalker, all one word. And, and you haven't made a phantom joke yet. So. <laughs> no relation to the ghost who walks. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much for coming on. Also, you guys have a Patreon, right? Yes. We have a Patreon for the Gem Jam, technically, although it's covering a lot of the projects I do with those people. Patreon.com slash the Gem Jam. All one word. Okay, great. And I definitely recommend people go out and go and if you think a podcast about Gem is not your thing, 
Sorry, you're wrong. (laughs) And definitely seek out I Will Fight You. It is joyous and wonderful. We're talking about episodes that will prove the point. Go and listen to the Jupiter Ascending episode. (laughs) It's real good. Annie actually took a picture of the face, the look she had on her face while recording the entire episode. And it is basically like the emoji with the, like the D for the mouth. That was her face. (laughs) Well, wolves and bees and angels and (laughs) all that stuff. Bees can sense royalty. Also, you should watch Jupiter Ascending. Everyone should watch Jupiter Ascending. My girlfriend and I had a rule where uh, for certain times we'd sit down to watch movies, we would have a no phones rule, so we'd actually pay attention. And we started that with Jupiter Ascending, and literally eight minutes into the movie, she said, go and get your phone. I can feel you like <laughs> vibrating from here wanting to do this. <laughs> it is the perfect live tweet movie. I'm sorry. It is. I think it was about around the time when the uh, the cyberpunk shark riding goth lady was like going above the cornfields. And I'm like, why is the movie not about her? She's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All right, Kate. Well, uh, thanks so much for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you very much to Kit Walker for her time. As Kit is teetotal and doesn't drink, this week's beverage will be a mocktail that I've dubbed the Helrix Cooler. In a blender, combine four cups of seedless watermelon cut into small cubes, one cup of coconut water, half a cup of jalapeno simple syrup, which is made by boiling equal parts of sugar and water with one to two jalapenos split lengthwise, after which you can strain it and keep it in the fridge for up to a month. Blend for about 30 seconds until it's smooth and frothy. Taste it and feel free to add a little bit more of the jalapeno syrup if that's what you like. Serve in a tall glass with crushed ice, along with a twist of lime and a sprig of mint. And look, if a little bit of tequila sneaks into that glass, I'm not going to judge you. Despite being a toa of water, Helrix is fierce and quick to anger, with a surprisingly fiery temper. Enjoy! The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram or Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and contribute as little as a dollar a month. It helps with the running costs of the show, and I would really, really appreciate it. Plus, you can get early access and special rewards. If you have a few minutes, go to the iTunes store of the country of your choice and leave us a rating or a review. It really helps with discoverability, and I will read out the review on the show and mention you by name. Remember, you have until the 5th of November to get in your questions for the Math of Me mailbag special. So if you want to get a question on the air, or just want to know anything about how I produce the show, or anything about me personally, just send it through to themathofyou at gmail.com before the 5th of November. This mailbag special is going to be hosted by our very first guest, Margaret H. Willison.
so you're guaranteed your daily helping of Delightful. You can also send me questions on Twitter. I promise to remember them. Next week, I'll be talking to Rosie Fletcher, journalist, co-host of Rosie and Jessica's Day of Fun, and author of the oh-so-pleasant newsletter on how having a computer was responsible for the stunting of her teenage emotional growth. We also reveal the secret as to why Kylie Minogue will never return to Neighbors. Join me, won't you? Uh, it sucks getting up at a reasonable hour. I, I've been working from home for like the last year. Oh, so you've been, you've been living that comfort life. Yeah, I, I have been living that get up at noon, stay up till four life. <laughs> oh, you, no. That's what really sucks about working from home, right? Is you lose all track of time and space. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, heard, I've heard from people who work at home that they have to like, they can't do the thing where they work in their pajamas. Like they have to like, when it's time to work, they have to like get dressed and act like they would have go to places otherwise they stay in that pajama mindset all day yeah I've, I've felt like even if I'm getting up at 1 p.m. I will get up do the hygiene thing put on some makeup put on actual clothes and then sit down to work just because it gets mm-hmm. me in that like frame of mind that okay I'm a professional I do this for a living I'm not just some slob sitting around being fun employed all day <laughs> see um I have, I have a ridiculous commute to get to work and so the few times that I'll be like, oh, I have to work from home, um, like it'll be like, oh, there's a you know a plumber coming to the house or uh, someone like a, a landlord inspection or something, and I'll get up at my usual time and then hear that I have to work from home, and I'll have like an hour and a half between when I decide I'm working from home till when I'm supposed to start, and then I feel really bad about being like, all right, what should what should I start now? <laughs> should I like? Like, what do I do? I, I wouldn't start working now if I was at work, you know? So then I play video games for like an hour and a half and I feel really bad about it. Like, I, I'm technically on the clock. I'm working from home, but and it all works out. See, at the moment, um, the job that I work at has me getting up at 10 minutes to 6 uh, to be at the office at 8.30. And um, that's messed up my body clock enough that, you know, for example, this morning I slept in till 20 past 6 and I felt like I was like the king of luxury. <laughs> God, getting up, I didn't know there was a 10 to 6 for the longest time. <laughs> or if there was, I was coming at it from the other direction. That's inhumane. It really is. Uh, I, I told, told this story on, on a previous episode, but it was like, uh, it started because I was house-sitting, and there was a, a house that had, like, magpies and cockatoos that would fight in the backyard and, like, screech and sound like someone's being murdered. And there's no snoozing after that. So you just, like, learn to be like, all right, I'm going to do all the dishes in the morning. I'm going to, like, put on some laundry. It'll be done. I'll hang it out. And then I'm going to go to work. That's right. You're in Australia. You've got, like, murder birds. Oh, yeah. This has been a surprisingly educational bit of this podcast where I tell people about, you know, the idea that you wear, like, cable ties on your bike helmet so it looks like spikes so a magpie doesn't try to cut you from behind. Yeah, I got a couple of other friends in Australia who... Every time it's magpie swooping season, they they are blogging about it nonstop. They're just like, oh, it's terrible, it's garbage, or or the fact that what no one talks about is that along with seagulls and pigeons, we also have ibises here, which are about the size of a chicken with like a long neck and a huge um, beak that I'm holding about maybe maybe about thirty centimeters long, and it's one thing when it when you throw a a, fr- a French fry to a seagull. It's another when you try to throw one to an ibis and it does this like scissor movement and like whips its head to the side and almost takes your finger off. <laughs> they're, they're like terrifying little dinosaurs. I guess that explains where the dinosaurs went. <laughs> they're yep. all in Australia. Yeah, also um, I have a, a, a little dog that's half Dachshund, half uh, Jack Russell. And we would take him like for walks that would go near the fish markets and there'd be pelicans there. And I'd have to be real careful because they look at him like he's lunch. Yeah, I've seen I've seen documentaries of what pelicans do to baby animals. It's not pretty. <laughs> yeah, and it's like they they walk they like walking around at the fish markets and they're just like, oh yeah, you're as tall as I am. That's that's disconcerting. Yeah, I remember. Um, I, I live in a really really green city, by which I mean heavily forested right at the core, because mm-hmm. the River Valley is a uh, is a migration corridor for wildlife. So as a result, at one point, okay. Parks and Recreation opened up this clearing down in the River Valley in one of the parks, and they found just, like, a pile of dozens of cat collars. 
Oh, no. From the coyotes. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. I, oh, I, was, I was 10 years old. A friend of mine, her cat went missing. And I was like, it's probably in that pile. Oh, no. Sure, everyone's thinking it, but don't say it. <laughs> I don't think I ever specifically brought it up with her, but I remember discreetly asking at one point, did any of those callers say buddy on it? Oh, no. Oh, no. I never did get an answer. <laughs> Inquiries are being pursued. Yeah, fortunately, fortunately, my uh, my family's dogs, my two little dogs, are now living with my dad down in Palm Springs. They don't have any really large predators there, so it's mostly just Jenny the Jack Russell chasing down lizards and eating them. <laughs> or cicadas. She will like, she'll snatch up a cicada and it'll start screaming. And then there'll be a crunching noise, oh, and you'll hear this, the screaming get quieter as it passes down her throat. And I'm like, wow, my dog's <laughs> terrifying. That is hardcore. <laughs>